Well, thank you so very much for gathering with us today. Uh, we're excited about this time together. I want to send a shout out to the Adrian campus who, who uh, joins with us too. Hope you guys are doing well today. Also, very few weeks go by that I'm not thinking about our military personnel, Heart of Life families who are different parts of the world, um, who online each week uh, tend to join with us. We are grateful for them. And especially this weekend, a Veterans Day weekend, and thinking about all those uh, men and women who have defended this country. Um, I want to take a second and do that, both for here and at the Adrian campus. Normally, we have our veterans stand, it seems like, but today, I want to do it a little different so that it gives us the honor to actually stand in your presence and thank you for who you are and what you've done. So would our veterans here and at Adrian, would you guys just lift your hands and give us a chance to thank you today? Those of you who have served, lift them high, lift them high. Let's thank them, church. you so very much. We truly do. A number of years ago, as a church, we began thinking through, praying through, kind of the idea of a theme for each year. And so when we would come up with a theme, of course, we would make t-shirts, right? Because literally, it, it's one of those ways that you can keep it right in front of you, one of those visual things. And so many of you probably know by now, um, for 2020, which is crazy, we're at 2020, um, our theme is more. Um, that came out of a, a study of Ephesians that we just went through uh, a few, few weeks ago. Uh, the fact that our God is able to do immeasurably more than all that we can ask or imagine more than we know how to ask for, more than we know how to dream of. He's bigger than all of that, but it's according to his power that is at work in us. But you know, I find it interesting over the last three series that we've done, we've looked at 1 Timothy, then we went to Ephesians, which that's the church that Timothy pastored. Now we're in 2 Timothy. In each of those studies, Paul keeps bringing up this issue. If you're going to live this out, you must learn how to fight correctly. And several years ago, that was, that was actually our theme. It was to fight forward. And in every one of these letters, he keeps bringing up the fact there is an enemy who is real. There is a fight that is real. If you don't understand the fight, you're going to be blindsided by this enemy. He is not here to trip you up. He is to take you out. And so we must fight forward. But what I've also found interesting is that in each of these letters, Paul understands the power of what we call why. Why do we do what we do? Because if you don't understand the why, you will soon crumble in the pressure. Well, for us, several years ago, we came up with this question, it's what's your why? What's your why? Why do you do what you do? 
And so I, I just thought it was interesting that some of the, the themes that we've really felt like God has called us to over the last several years, they, they really do all fit together in, in this Jesus life that he's called us to. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Jeff, why didn't you just wear one of those to make it a whole lot easier, right? Instead of having to take all those shirts, you, you would have made it a little bit easier. Well, the reason that I didn't wear one of those today is because I wore one of these today. I wore one of these today. And I assure you, I am not wearing one of these because my head is so big that it will not fit through the door. I, I got asked that question today. It's like, how, how does your head even fit through the door? Here's how. We have lost to them for eight straight years. That's how. It's like, I, I, we play Alabama every year and we lose. We can be really good, and they beat us eight straight years. I figured today I better wear the shirt because today's the day. But, but here's what I want you to get. I promise you with all my heart, my hope is not here. Because you know what? I cheer for my team every single year, and it's been a while since we won a national championship. I, I cheer for them all the time, and losses still happen. I promise you, I enjoy the win, especially over Alabama. But this is not my hope. This is my hope. My hope is in a God who can do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine, and it is according to his power that is at work in us. So, I hope this doesn't distract you too bad today. We're going to dig into Scripture. You ready? 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. Here's what he says. Timothy, keep reminding God's people of these things. Timothy, keep reminding God's people of these things. Okay, the question is, what are these things? These things are what we have been learning so far in 2 Timothy. You have an outline today. I encourage you to make use of it. Grab a pen, something you can write with, and fill in some blanks. Because here's what Timothy is to remind them of. Here's what we are to be reminded of over and over. Here's, here's the first one. It's one big point. This is what we learned. Keep on feeding the intense flame of God's gift. But what was the gift? Unashamed courage. Unashamed courage to speak of Christ and to suffer for the gospel. That's what we learned in week one. You are going to go through struggle. You are called to live with power. Speak of Christ. There are going to be times of suffering, but he has given you unashamed courage. Feed that flame. Feed that flame. In order to do that, it requires the focus of a soldier. That's what we learned. You got to have the focus of a soldier. He, he obeys one commanding officer, not getting entangled in all the, the earthly affairs around him. It involves the integrity of an athlete. It takes discipline. Some of you are really good athletes, and you, you know it. It requires training. You got to say no to a lot of stuff in order to say yes to what really makes you strongest. And then it involves the tenacity of a farmer. Farmers know how to get up every day. Most days, not real glamorous. There's not a harvest every day. You just got to do what's required. There's sweat. There's hard work. He says, this is what you got to do. This is what's involved. But we also learned last week that Paul says, what's our why? Our why 
is the ultimate why. Because we have a living Savior. He is not dead. He is risen. We have an unstoppable gospel. This message that we proclaim, it, it is unstoppable. An eternal purpose. We get to be a part of seeing other people come to know this Jesus that we know loves us. And a faithful promise. He says, I'm going to be with you. Even if this suffering takes your life, you get to be with me forever, and I am always faithful. Now, why would Paul say keep on reminding them? Because we need reminding. We know that we have a tendency to be distracted from the mission. We know that we have a tendency to be discouraged under pressure. We need to be reminded. Here's what matters most. Here's how we get there, and this is why we do it. Let's keep reading, verse 14. So keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words. It is of no value and only ruins those who listen. So let's, let's just break it down for a second, and then I'll kind of give you a point for, for where I think he's going here. Warn. It really is what it sounds like. This word for warning even means out of your experience, Timothy. You know this. This is serious. You got you to tell them this is serious. The word them means that it's not just for the pastors. Hey, this is for all God's people. You, you, you need to see this. And you warn them before who? God. You warn them before God. That's an interesting phrase that shows up numerous times in the Bible, in the presence of God. Can I tell you that sometimes when that phrase is used, it's used for the purpose of increasing someone's comfort? And isn't it true that sometimes we think about being in the presence of God, it's supposed to comfort us? But can I tell you that the majority of the time that phrase is used in the Bible in speaking about before God, it is almost, well, the majority at least, is to heighten accountability. It's to say, hey, this is not just me and you. This, this is before God. So I want you to warn them, Timothy, before God against quarreling about words it's like well that doesn't seem like a big deal well apparently it was and it is what you need to know in Paul's day is that there were some false teachers who would move in and out of places like Ephesus and they love to display their knowledge on what I'm gonna call peripheral things so in a context where we've been talking about focus, we've been talking about here's what matters most and here's why we do it, all of a sudden we've got these false prophets who love to display their knowledge on peripheral things. But the reason they love to talk was not for the purpose of calling people to godliness. It was basically to be able to demonstrate how smart they are. It was really about their pride. It was really about saying, here's what I know, and I can argue with you, and I can win just about any argument. 
So I want to make sure we understand that when he's telling us against quarreling about words and, and, and these, you know, these peripheral things, Paul is not saying that the precise words of Scripture don't matter because they do matter. He's not saying that growing in spiritual knowledge is unimportant because it is important that we grow in spiritual knowledge. But I think the context of what's happening here in Ephesus is what he's warning us of is that to use the Bible for knowledge without obedience is to use it improperly. To use the Bible simply for knowledge, look what I know, look how smart I am, and not use it for obedience, then we're using it improperly. He says, Timothy, when people do this, it leads to ruin. It's the word that we just read in the scripture. It's where we get our word catastrophe. That's the Greek word. It's catastrophe. It's just spiritual destruction. Isn't it wild that the enemy can even use spiritual knowledge to puff us up and lead us to pride and send our heart the other direction from God? But when you truly know God in his holiness and in his majesty, it humbles us. So he's saying, church, don't engage in these intellectual fights over obscure points of doctrine and neglect to do what God has called you to do. He's called you to a mission. Stay focused, stay, stay disciplined, walk with integrity. This is your mission. Don't lose sight. Instead, verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Now, that's a verse out of the Bible that some of you have learned along the way. Some of you grew up maybe in Sunday school or you did like Bible drills, and this is always one of those verses. It's just interesting that we learn this verse, and a lot of times we don't understand the context in which we read this verse. But here's what he's saying. He says, I want you to do your best. That just means maximum effort. That really is what the words mean. I want you to do your best to present yourself to God. It's the imagery of standing right alongside God. I'm not doing this to please people. I'm, I'm doing it to please him. He says, I, I want you to present yourself to God as one who is approved. It means that you have, you have been tested and you, have, you are proven worthy. He said, as a worker, this involves energy. This involves work. What are you doing? You are correctly handling the word of God. Correctly handling the word of God. The Greek words and the imagery that comes with that phrase, correctly handling, means to cut a straight line. Okay? To cut a straight line. Sometimes it was used in referring to surgery. If you're having surgery, you want a surgeon who will cut a straight line, right? 
You don't, you, don't, you don't want him just kind of guessing and where does it go. No, you want someone precise. They will cut a straight line. Sometimes it was used even as simple as cutting a piece of wood. If you're building a, a piece of furniture, you got you to gotta cut it right. So you got you to gotta cut the wood or you cut a stone to build a foundation or a path or cloth or hides, which is what I think the context is for Paul. You see, the Bible tells us that Paul was a leather worker. Now, it often gets translated as tent maker, so we call him a tent maker, but, but the actual words are that he was a leather worker. Well, what does he do? He takes the skins of animals, the hides of animals, and Paul knew how to precisely cut. Right? He's not dealing with an animal that's big enough to make you a whole tent. And so there are multiple skins, multiple hides that have to be cut precisely so that when you fit the pieces together, you have an appropriate tent. What he's saying here is, you need to work hard. You need to be diligent. At the pieces of Scripture... You look at them making sure that you're doing your very best, that you are precisely reading and understanding, here's what this means, and here's what this means, and here's what this means, and when you approach each of those pieces precisely, then you are able to put that together into a correct system of theology about who God is, how he works, who you are in him. Isn't that a cool picture? He's like, you got to cut it straight. You got to know how to be precise. So here's the point that I'm giving you. Devote your highest priority to please God by using his word with precision. Use his word with precision. Man, it's really easy to get lazy and just know what something says but not really understand what something means. It's funny, I didn't even have this in my notes, but I, I was thinking about it even this morning. Uh, every once in a while, someone will get caught having done something wrong or something is revealed. You know, maybe it's a political race or something and suddenly somebody's past suddenly surfaces and now everybody knows it. And I, I have heard it happen multiple, multiple times where the quote that's given is, well, the truth will make you free. Now you know the truth, the truth will make you free. It's like, okay, I'm glad you know it says that, but do you know that ain't what that means? That verse is not about when you get caught doing something bad, the fact that everybody now knows now makes you feel better. No, that, that, that truth is anchored in knowing Jesus. It is anchored in knowing who he is, the, the truth of who he is as the son of God, the only one who possibly can set us free. The context is not, oops, I got caught, but now that everybody knows I'm free, that's not what it means. I'm saying it's really easy to get lazy and just pick out pieces here and there. He's saying, no, you got to cut this precisely make a maximum effort so that you will one day stand alongside the holy presence of God unashamed because you have proven yourself worthy one who worked to handle God's word with precision my, my, my question to you is is that a maximum effort in your life or is your approach to the word of God sort of something you do 
when there's time left over from everything else. He's saying, come on, this matters because this is God's word. This matters more than you realize. Now, if you know what's truth, if you know what's genuine, then you can, verse 16, avoid godless chatter. If you know what's truth, you know what's God's word, then you can avoid godless chatter. Because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. He says, I want you to avoid godless chatter. What is that? Well, just think of it as this is not speech that comes from, from, from God. This is not his word. These are, these are just the words of people, the arguments of people, jargon, human philosophy, man-made religion. I probably need to say to the students in the room, this is not a biblical principle that means you don't have to study for your philosophy test. It's not what it is. But what it is is saying when you approach something like human philosophy, believing it to be authoritative, you approach human philosophy looking for purpose and meaning. He said those words are not found from God. And so words that are not from God, I gave you a list of them there, here's the first one, should be avoided. He says avoid it. Now come on, look at the imagery. He just says when it comes to God's word, handle it, right? Handle God's word with precision. But when it comes to godless chatter, avoid it. It, it literally means to walk around it. It means to shun it. It means to stay away. Then he says words that are not from God will become more ungodly. Leave it alone because it's going to get worse. Empty words, not godly words, are going to become evil words. I, I, the, the imagery I think of is, is kind of like, you ever vacuum your car? Some of y'all do it regularly. Some of you, it's like once a year kind of deal, right? I've seen your car. And, and you, you go to one of those things where you can put the money in because you don't want to tear up your own vacuum, right? And, and you know, so you, get, you go to one of those places where like the hose on those things are like this big around, right? And you are vacuuming out the inside of your car and all of a sudden what happens? Something goes in there and you're like, uh-oh. I hope that was like only a pin, right? Your immediate thought is what valuable thing just got sucked down the hose into the, right? When he talks about empty words here, that, that's, that's kind of the picture. It's like empty words become evil words because they, they are not God's words. They, in a way, they just, they just suck up sin in a way. He says, these false teachers are claiming to be advancing your thinking. Well, they're advancing all right. The point is they're going down. And it gets worse and worse and worse. Third thing. Words that are not from God spread quickly. And he gives us the gangrene picture. Isn't that lovely? It's like this all-consuming, fast-moving 
right, infection or, or disease that gets so bad that it just literally affects the blood flow in the body and, and eventually even tissue will die off. It is a ugly, fast moving effect. In other words, we just went from, this is not ruin, this is not just catastrophe, this is not just something bad, but literally a dying off. I think it moves so quickly, maybe because it already feeds the system that some of us really want in the sense of I want to be God of my life. I want to call the shots. I want to be in charge. And so a system that feeds that, it just spreads quickly. One more, words that are not from God, destroy faith, he says. It destroys faith. And Paul named some names. Um, Hymenaeus, we've actually heard his name before because Paul mentioned him in 1 Timothy. So he's a, he's a recurring figure. It seems that he was one of the leading false teachers in Ephesus, and Paul put him out. Paul put him out of the church. That's one of those turn him over kind of moments that we looked at. Turn him over to the enemy. But it appears that Hymenaeus didn't leave town. He sort of appears to have set up shop down the road. And his false teaching still spreading. Now we've got Philetus with him who apparently is accomplice. I think everybody knows this. The church, I mean, because, I mean, when somebody gets put out of the church, you, you, you kind of know here's what's going on and here's what they're teaching. Paul's saying, again, I want you to avoid, avoid this kind of conversation. They heard the truth, they rejected the truth, and now they have gone into error. What, was, what were they teaching? They were teaching false things about the resurrection. Now, it's not crystal clear exactly what, what their belief is coming from. It is, has Hymenaeus built in some kind of mystical experience, belief that, that it's not really a physical resurrection, it's just from being unenlightened to now being enlightened? Or maybe it's the Greek thinking of his day that really the only way life continued was through the children that you had. You don't really continue to live. It's, it's your children that carry on that life. Or, or maybe it was a, a philosophical dualism of his day that, that said the body is just something to be discarded and the only thing that lives on is the spirit. So there is no bodily resurrection. And right now you might be saying to me, well, does it really matter? And the shout from Scripture, as in God's Word, is yes, it matters. Well, how do we know it matters? We know it matters because we have studied God's Word in seven or eight years before Paul writes this. He wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and he says, if there is no resurrection, then did Christ not rise from the dead? And if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we are not risen? And his whole point is, you know what? You just cut the heart out of the gospel. He says, if you deny the resurrection and, and, and its implications, you're denying the gospel, you're denying the hope that we have, of those of us who belong to, to Jesus, you're denying the foundation of the Christian faith. You're denying eternal life in a glorified body forever with him. You're denying Christianity at the heart. Yeah, it matters. And so he's saying you got to stay away from people who aren't teaching you the truth because it will destroy your faith. And the picture here is of a person 
who, who is sort of looking for answers, looking for God, wanting to believe something, but they get under this kind of lying, false teaching, and it literally just rips their faith away. I wish I could convince people to recognize that every false religion really is authored by the same enemy. And those false religions are just placed there looking for people who are feeling the pain and the pressure of life. They're sort of moving toward religion, sort of looking for answers from God, and that false teaching just sucks them in. And he says, faith destroyed. Well, that's not very encouraging, right? That's why I'm glad for the next word. The next word. Did I give you the blank on that one? Yeah, I did. Always worry I'm going to miss the blank with you. Here's the next word, verse 19. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. That's good news. You remember that song you sang just a few minutes ago about a rock that doesn't move? Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. Sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Now, I want you to look at this again. God's solid foundation stands firm. And then he uses this imagery of sealed with an inscription. We're going to talk about that. And then two parts to the seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Despite all the damage Paul says that I just gave you, here's what false teaching can do. The good news is God's solid foundation stands firm, and for those who really are his, no one can separate us from his love. Sealed. What was the purpose of a seal in Paul's day? Ownership. It was ownership. And in particular, they would often place seals, for example, on the cornerstone of a building. All right, you familiar with a cornerstone? I mean, it was that first piece. It set everything about how that thing would be formed and built. On the cornerstone of the building, they would seal it. And they would place a seal that both declared... This is the builder's building. It's his building, his name's on it. And it would state the purpose of the building. Ownership and purpose. Paul says, do you understand that you are a part of the foundation of God, a building. We studied in Ephesians, his church that that he has constructed. And do you understand there is a seal? There is a seal on this building And it's about ownership, and it's about purpose. Now, you can read this whole story later this week. I would encourage you to read it. But the two statements that Paul make here 
really do seem to be referring way back to a story a long, long time before in the Old Testament that involved Moses, remember him? Guy that God says, you're going to be the one who leads my people out of slavery in Egypt. You're going to lead them. He leads them through the wilderness right up to the promised land. It's a story that involves Moses and a man named Korah. Korah was allowed to serve basically in the, what we would call, it was the tabernacle then. So it was the, the, the think about the temple, but it was tent form because they were moving around. He was allowed to serve there. But the day came that, 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 that Korah basically said, hey, all of us are God's, God's kids here. We're, we, we are his kids. Moses, Aaron, who do you think you are? You've taken this too far. Who do you think you are? Well, the answer is Moses was the one that God had said, lead. Aaron was, was the high priest. And Korah's saying, who, who, who do you think you are? And, and, and so they begin to, to, to push back. Korah gathers 250 what is described as community leaders. In other words, this isn't just 250 people that he somehow just, you know, found here and there and got them to sign a petition. These are 250 community leaders that everybody knows. These are influential people, and together they are coming before Moses and Aaron saying, who do you think you are that you should lead? And in Numbers chapter 16, verse 5, this is what Moses says. He said to Korah and all his followers, in the morning, the Lord will show who belongs to him. Now, that's the phrase that Paul just said is on the seal. God knows who belongs to him. In the morning, Korah, the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy. I didn't highlight that, but that's going to play a part. We're coming back to it in a little bit. And he will have that person come near him. The man he cho chooses, he will cause to come near to him. Korah, God's going to sort this out in the morning. Now, when I hear in the morning, that's sort of like one of those moments when I remember, uh, you know, once or twice in my life where I got in trouble and my dad had to say, go to your room and think about it. Now, what I knew is, after I went and thought about it, there were still going to be consequences to that. You know what I'm saying? But to go to your room, think about it. I, but I think what's happening here, this might be mercy. This might be some grace. This is like, Cora, you, tomorrow, I'm giving you a chance tonight to think through what you are doing here. Think through what you are saying here. Tomorrow morning, the Lord is going to show who belongs to him. Let me give you one of your blanks. 
We stand in the foundation of God when we belong to him. He knows who belongs to him. So think about a context of people who are going through suffering, people who are enduring pressure. He knows who belongs to him. There are false teachers who are trying to, to trip you up, mess you up. There, there, there's, a, there's a battle going on here. The Lord knows who belongs to him. When do you stand in the foundation of God? When you belong to him. Next morning, Moses gathers Korah and the 250 men, leaders. And he has them take, um, calls them censers, all right, which they are to fill with coals, burning coals for incense. And so they all stand before basically the, the, the opening to the, the, the tabernacle in a way. And so when I think of censer, when I'm trying to describe it to kids, I'll often say it's like almost like holding a lantern. Think of like a, a so a metal something that's got coals in it and it has a, a smell and aroma that's coming from it. And they all stand before the, the tent. They all stand before, in the sense, the presence of God. And God says to Moses, verse 20, separate yourselves from this assembly so that I can put it into them at once. All right, so Korah and 250 men are pushing back saying, we think we should be leading. Moses shouldn't be leading. The next morning, God says to Moses and Aaron, the high priest, you two separate yourself from this whole assembly because you know what? I'm done. The Bible says that Moses and Aaron got on their, their face before God and said, God, don't wipe out this entire assembly because of the sin of one man who has now affected 250. Don't, don't, don't wipe them out. And so a little later, a few verses later, God's new instruction is, okay, Moses and Aaron, you tell the rest of the assembly to get away from Korah and the 250. Get away from them. Now that should have been warning, right? Get away from them. And Moses says this. This is one of the things that cracks me up. One of the Old Testament stories, if it wasn't so sad, I really do laugh, I admit it when I read it. Moses says, if Korah and these men simply die a natural death, Right? They die of old age, or maybe it's in battle, because, I mean, all that was just a part of their life. That was normal stuff. If, it's kind of like if they die in a normal way, you will know that God did not choose me as Moses to be the leader. <laughs> but he goes, if they die in like a weird way, like, a, like if God does something new, like, I don't know, opens the ground and swallows them, Warning, right? I'm reading that, go warning. And it says, as soon as Moses finished saying those words, the ground opened up and it swallowed Korah and all of the 250 men and everything attached to them. What was the instruction? Get away from them. Get away. From them. 
I'm giving you the positive side of that. So the book, back, to your, back to your blank. We stand in the foundation of God when we belong to him and we obey him. The way you could say it is when, when, we, when we move from wickedness, when we, when we turn from sin, when we run to righteousness. When, but it's basically when, when we obey him, that's when we stand in his foundation. As I, as I think about the context of Timothy and Ephesus and Moses in, in, in the wilderness, it sounds a lot like what Jesus taught one time. He, he gave a story and he said, one day this farmer planted wheat and in the night an enemy came and planted some weeds among the wheat, calls it tares. And so after a while, both of them started growing up in the field and they suddenly realized, whoa, we, we can't, in the beginning, you can't tell the difference. In that, in that day, there were times that you couldn't tell some of the difference. There was a particular weed that very much looked like it. And then, and then the, the workers are like, we got weeds growing up in, among the, the wheat, and, and, but, but they want to pull it up. And, and the point of the story is the farmer says, don't pull them up. Don't pull them up. You let the wheat and the weeds grow up together. And the farmer says, in the end, I'll do the separating. In the end, I'll do the separating. You know what, that sounds a whole lot like the advice that Paul's giving a young man, Timothy. To not get so wrapped up in these quarrels of little words and battles in a religious realm. Sometimes I think we get so focused on who's real and who's not and what's truth and, and, and him or her and us and them and it's like God's going, I'll deal with the weeds. <laughs> the way I see it is, you know what, I've learned that God knows how to take out the trash. God knows how to take out the trash. Now, I am familiar with taking out the trash because at my house, that's like the last thing that I will do tonight before my garage door shuts, right, and house locked down, is I will identify the trash in our house. We, we will put it in the appropriate barrels and we will take it out to the road. I will take it out to the road and in the morning, in the morning, they will take away the trash. Now, please don't, please don't hear me wrong today because I am not comfortable at all ever calling anyone trash. Okay, so don't, don't misinterpret what I'm saying. I, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not comfortable, uh, even a person at their worst, worst level, I, I'm not comfortable using the word trash. What I'm saying here is that sometimes in the household of God, there are things and there are teachings that if left alone, stinks. It will soon stink. And what we are taught is not to ignore that. You gotta confront it. You deal with it just like Paul did, just like Moses did. We roll it to the road. <laughs> And in the morning, God knows how to take out the trash. You stay focused. That's the message. You remember your why. That's the message. 
You serve a living Savior. You proclaim an unstoppable gospel. You fulfill an eternal purpose. And there is a faithful promise that he has made. This is going to end well for you with him forever. You stay on task and let God take out the trash when the trash needs to be taken out. You don't need to keep on arguing, battling with words. Isn't that a cool story? So here's what you remember. Stay on mission. Don't trust your words more than God's. Sometimes I think we have that ability. Somebody wants to confront us with something that we know to not be true. There is a point where we need to address it. We, it's okay to talk about it. But he's saying, don't you get wrapped up in this quabble, squabbling with little words. Stay on mission. And don't trust your words more than God's.